do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there, I'm Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. You can call me Andrea. Thanks for listening to Talk About Talk. This is where we come to learn and talk about all things communication. Because when we communicate effectively, we can be a better manager, coworker, parent, partner, and friend. Today, we're talking communicating change, as in how we can improve our change leadership skills. This could be personal change with a partner or a family or professional change, like change in a work department or for a corporation. In this podcast, you'll learn how to avoid the common mistakes that people make when they're leading change and six principles for communicating change effectively. This topic really is relevant for everyone, not just corporate managers. We're all changing all the time, right? Are you a parent? Are your kids changing? Is your family changing? Exactly. As they say, if you're not changing, you're not living. And the only constant in life is change. So whether you and your partner or your family are trying to decide where to go on your next vacation, or maybe you're managing a move, this really does apply to everyone. I'm going to introduce our guest expert to you now, and then we'll get right into the interview. Of course, I'll summarize briefly at the end, and you can always reference the podcast show notes on the talkabouttalk.com website. Our guest expert today is a professor, author, and consultant to corporations on change management. Ellen Oster is professor of strategic management at York University's Schulich School of Business. She's the founding executive director of York Change Leadership and co-founder of a consultancy called Stragility Change Management. Professor Oster was my change management professor when I did my MBA years ago. She was my absolute favorite MBA professor. You'll see why in a minute. And I know many other students shared my opinion of her. She won many teaching awards. So she started as my teacher. Then I did a practicum with her. Then she became a mentor. And then a reference for me later in my academic career. And now she's a friend that I very much look up to, both professionally and personally. Ellen earned her BA from Colgate and her PhD from Cornell University. She also served on the faculty at Columbia and as visiting faculty at Dartmouth. Over her academic career, Ellen has won too many research and teaching awards to mention. She's also published a few books. Most recently, she co-authored a book called Stragility, Excelling at Strategic Changes. I'll leave a link to the book in the show notes. I am so grateful to Ellen for joining us to share her expertise on change. But like Ellen, she took it to another level. Knowing that we're focusing here on communication at Talk About Talk, she actually took the time to create a unique list just for us of the six principles for communicating change. Let's get into that now. Thank you so much for joining us, Ellen. I'm so happy to be here. Delighted to do this actually with you, Andrea. Me too. Today, we're going to be talking about communicating change and specifically leading change. So I thought we should start with a definition. Can you define change leader for us, please? Yeah, in my mind, change leader is someone who inspires others. They spark their passion and sort of unleash their potential to bring new ideas to life. It's interesting, catalyzed by us doing this podcast, I started thinking more explicitly about change in communication and realizing that really conversation and talking are the engines of change. Wow. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And, you know, whether that's in our families, trying to enroll others to think about our next vacation, or whether it's us as change leaders transforming tech in the workplace, 
We all do change all the time, day in and day out, big change, little change. And really, how do we get going on that? And how do we stay on track? And how do we make it happen? It's through conversations. Exactly. Change really is so difficult, yet it's so necessary. I've heard this from other podcast guests about how if you're not changing, you're not growing. And if you're not growing, you're not really living. And yet it's really difficult for many of us, including myself. The default is status quo because it's easier. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of it and why change is so difficult? Yeah, I think change is difficult because we are sort of creatures of habit on the one hand. We love routine. We love stability. We like patterns, right? But at the same time, if we're stuck in patterns, stuck in routine, we get bored, we get disinterested, we feel like we're not growing. So it's sort of this paradoxical relationship between craving both stability and growth. And with growth is usually change. You say in your book that change fitness is the critical foundational skill. Yeah, it's interesting. Like 20 years ago, when you think about organizations, it was more about big leaping change that they would plan for three years and then roll out a five-year plan. And it was like an eight-year cycle. And the reality of today's marketplace, but also today's life for us just as individuals is that change is constant. And so change fitness is really about getting comfortable with navigating all of that uncertainty and ambiguity while still sort of finding a path and knowing when it's too much and we need to pause, but also knowing when we need more and are excited about trying new things. I completely agree. Change cycle has been truncated. It's happening more frequently and the output is relevant for a shorter period of time. Yes. It becomes obsolete quickly, whatever we're doing, which is why we need, back to the idea of change fitness, build our change muscles. If you think about the analogy to physical fitness. So a lot of what we do is about helping people navigate this change on the one hand, but also build those skills and capabilities. So I definitely want to hear about all of those skills. But first... Maybe it's a little more fun to talk about what are some of the most common mistakes that people make when they're managing change? Yeah, I do think these pitfalls work either individually or with teams or with whole organizations. So one of the first ones we see is this tendency under time pressure and the need to be more efficient to steamroll forward. So we're all faced with tons of pressure rather than really understanding our context. So steamroll forward is definitely one pitfall. The second is sort of telling and selling the change rather than inspiring and and engaging. And whether that's we need to move to San Francisco or whether it's, you know what, grab your basketball right now because we're out the door because we're running late. That kind of directive language doesn't resonate very well for most of us. We I tend think to I push do back. <laughs> I do that a lot as a parent, right? Yeah, the telling. We, well, we all do under time pressure and we're trying to get out the door. We're, and so that's about explaining the why and really inspiring and engaging. The third one is lock and load. So we're struggling to solve a problem or a change challenge. The first good idea that comes up We sort of lock and load on that rather than really exploring alternatives. And sometimes that makes sense. I mean, sometimes we do want to actually just do the first good thing that comes to mind. If we're choosing a restaurant and someone has a great idea, sure, we'll jump on the first restaurant. But 
if we're thinking about sort of more massive organizational changes or even high impact family events like vacations, you know, we really want to explore alternatives. The fourth one is the politics. The politics are scary for most of us. We tend to think about them as taboo. We don't talk about the politics. We sort of pretend they'll go away, but they won't. In Stragility, one of the things we focus on is really a systematic approach, thinking about stakeholders and various reactions to change and how we can work with people. A uh, systematic approach to dealing with the politics specifically? Yeah, oh, okay. exactly. Okay. I love that point about politics because you're right. It's I was thinking a dirty word, but it is taboo, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, even to put it on the table as a topic of discussion will make a lot of people nervous, right? Even on an, on an agenda, let's talk about the politics of this initiative. First reaction is usually, who, I don't know, that seems, you know, scary. And how do we do that without creating more resistance? And this is a bit of a digression, but how do you define politics in that context? So I can imagine you consulting to a group and saying, okay, we need to talk about the politics here. And someone says, whoa, what do you mean? Yeah. So politics really is stakeholder engagement and all the varieties of that. And that kind of definition usually makes people feel more comfortable too, right? Absolutely. But in that spectrum of reactions to change, there's resistance, there's jockeying for power. Power. It's all about power. And so to be quite explicit about those kinds of challenges and think about also what do people need? You know, what's in it for them? For one person, it may be the power. And so can we actually provide some power that will help enroll them. For somebody else, it might be, you know what, I just want to see an impact. I want to see that the customer is impacted by this. Um, It's really about also drilling down right to the individual level to think about what's sort of the compelling why at the individual level. So motivations. Yeah. Okay. And then there's one more, which is one of the common mistakes in change is just way too much change all at the same time and overwhelmingly and people burn out the change fatigue problem. Okay. So I just want to say for the listeners that we've now pretty quickly gone through five common mistakes, steamrolling forward, telling and selling, lock and load, ignoring the politics and burning ourselves out and All of these with notes are included in the show notes if you go to talkabouttalk.com. So so my next question for Ellen is regarding her most recent book, Stragility. What is Stragility? Yeah, good question. So Stragility actually is a word I invented early one morning when I was typing strategic agility too fast, and it wasn't auto-corrected yet, and that word popped up, and I went, ooh, I like that word, right? And so that's sort of its origins, but it's really about being strategic, which makes sense. Agile, which of course is a really common word. But the third element, which we couldn't figure out how to put into the word, is really the people-powered aspect. In the end, all change is about all of us rallying to do something different. And without that people component, we don't get very far. So this is not about personal change necessarily. This is about some sort of team, some sort of unit, a corporation, family, couple, right? That's true. Although it's funny, I've had MBA students circle back and say, I used Stragility this morning. My car broke down on the highway and I sort of, you know, so. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I actually have had some nudges from people on thinking about using the same framework and approach we use for Stragility to map career Stragility. 
Wow. So I do think it is, it sort of resonates at any level of analysis, whether that's individual, team, group, organization. Okay. The book is focused more on sort of leading organizations, right. but I think a lot of the principles actually work at multiple levels. I'm glad I asked that because I would yeah. have assumed that it yeah. was mostly focused on corporations, but then also personal. But you're right, yeah. you could overlay this. Yeah. Interesting question. So in thinking about this podcast, I am so grateful that you generated six success principles in change communication. And I'm wondering if you can take the listeners through those. Sure. It was sort of a fun exercise to step back because communication is not usually my front hat that I wear, you know, and so to sort of step back and say, if, if the emphasis is really on communication, what would I say are some essential elements? And the first is that shared ownership piece. I am such an avid believer of enrolling whoever is being impacted or representatives of those constituencies right from the beginning. So often in change, I think, whether it's parents in their bedroom at night sort of planning the next whatever for their family or the executive team of an organization, the initial steps happen behind the scenes, behind closed doors. And then there's this tendency to then sort of roll it out. And roll it out looks good from the top or as a parent, but roll it out doesn't feel so good typically for the rest of the organization or the family. Absolutely. And so yep. having shared ownership from the start and what does that look like? You know, that's really about starting the conversations very early on. It's providing opportunity for everyone to sort of shape and mold as we go. And everyone, we can get it. That's a whole nother conversation around if we do everyone co-creating fully all the time, that gets very time consuming. So it's choiceful everyone, which right. might be reps. There uh, may be representatives. Rep, yeah. So I have an off script question here for you okay. about that. I've been involved in organizations uh, at a board level or at a corporate level where they've been interested in initiating change and they've brought in groups and you hear this undertone of, oh, they're just checking the box because they need a board member here. They need a whatever, an executive in this department, an executive in that department, a lay person. How do you communicate that this isn't just checking boxes? It's actually important. Yeah, I think it's the process underlying the role of those representatives. And that's about, are they given the opportunity to actually go back to their groups, whatever the nature of those groups are, and ask questions, get input, and, and given a voice at the table? Because often those reps are at the table, but they don't really have a voice. Yes, you can have reps, but behind that, there should be some kind of cascading process that's sort of iterating information back and forth from the larger group into that sort of portal of the, the top executive boardroom if it's, you know, sort of a board situation. Because otherwise you will get the pushback. A, how is a representative chosen? And B, they're not really our spokesperson. So that's where I also like people sort of having an option to choose who sits at the table. Uh -huh. And it may not always be the same person, even over the course of a change. So early in the change process, it may make sense to have some individuals and later in the change process, a different set of individuals. I love having front lines in that room later on because they're the ones that really understand how the change. And they're often doing the real implementation. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. I can see how complicated this gets. My <laughs> mind is spinning about the yeah. politics, actually. Complicated, but also 
simple in the sense of like that shared ownership piece. It seems like common sense, but it's not easy. Oh, it's not easy. And easy to forget under time pressure and deadlines and quarterly reports. And right? Right. Yeah. Right. Around the idea of shared ownership, there's sort of two elements. One is enrolling those we know and those beyond our inner circle to really assess the landscape, both in our industry, but also on the periphery uh-huh. to get ideas that we might reapply. A good example is a hospital that we worked with. And so, of course, they were looking at leading best practices in patient care from other hospitals, but also looking at the periphery. So what can we learn from leading hotels about how to make, in this case, it was kids, how to make kids feel really comfortable when they have to come back again and again, like for chronic illnesses? And also looking even beyond sort of hotels to, ooh, what can we learn about mindfulness and meditation that might help with healing and pain management? That's about really looking externally. And usually we know people. If we, if we have a circle of, you know, whoever's the, sort of the central tribe of the change, most of those people will have somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. So it's more than just sort of scanning conventional leading practices you might find in industry analysis and really talking to people about how they do what they do. And then on the shared ownership from the start, the second huge element is sort of the internal diagnostics and really asking people for what are the pain points with how we currently do things? What ideas do you have for how to eliminate those pain points moving forward? Uh, As well as strengths, what do we do well that we don't want to destroy and change? So often in change in the process, We undermine maybe some of our key capabilities. Talking to those who are going to be impacted and those who will be responsible for the change about really what are the underlying pain points and strengths, as well as anticipating hiccups and hurdles with whatever we're in. Is it almost like doing a SWAT? Well, it is. And I like the language of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. What I don't like about the weakness sort of idea is often we don't get to the underlying why behind the Uh. weakness. And if we don't get, if we just sort of call it out as a weakness, we, we can't, we end up solving the wrong problem. We're sort of treating symptoms rather than getting to the core. So if I have a sore throat, for example, and we treat the symptoms, that looks like a cough drop. But if I have a sore throat and it's strep, If I don't know that, I never know that the underlying why is this sort of bigger disease that I need antibiotics for. And the same thing happens all the time in organizations, which sort of gets back to that pitfall around lock and load is we lock and load before we really understand why something is a pain point or a weakness. I do like the opportunities and threats, although the buckets I find sometimes too dichotomous. And I also like the idea of core and periphery. My worry on the SWAT is we don't get outside our core industry to look at some of those periphery. I think that looking on the periphery can help us in so many contexts in our life, not even just change management, which is kind of everything. Right. But I remember when I was a doctoral student and one of my favorite professors, Jerry Zalman, would tell me to go read something in a completely different area and see how it would apply to what I was focused on and stretch my brain and my thinking that way. And so I can see it for a corporation, Yeah, how it's that would help. It's so powerful. And you're right. On an individual level, how many times do we get good ideas doing something completely different that we then connect the dots right. and go, oh, right. that would be cool. You could be watching a movie. Whether you're working on your thesis, wow, you read something in the New York Times Magazine and go, oh, 
Yeah, absolutely. So all senior executives should also be very well read. Well, all people. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, I think it's a little less about reading and more about taking the time to connect the dots because we're all exposed to stimulus all day long in everything we do. And it's, it's so easy to just compartmentalize, right? As yep. a way of coping with everything, the right. onslaught that we have to deal Information with. Information overload. I have heard that that is actually a sign of intelligence. Having that ability <laughs> oh, to connect the dots is mm. one of the signals, I guess, of higher intellect. Yeah. And pausing. We need to pause sort of to do that, right? Yeah. I think that's the other reason a lot of us don't, don't do it. I get them in the middle of the night sometimes. Like I'll be sleeping. I post it next to my bed because I'll be sleeping. And all of a sudden it's like my brain is doing that while I'm sleeping and I'll have some aha, right? Yeah. I have woken up a few times in the morning and thought, I know I had an epiphany last yeah. night and I have no <laughs> idea what the context was. Yeah. So it's interesting when we think about shared ownership, how does that really, one of the ways that really comes to life is grounded in sort of what I'm thinking about is success principle number two for communication and change. And that's about having the conversations with our stakeholders, both externally and internally to help us assess the landscape. And so often in change, I think we don't really take the time we need to dig deep about understanding the context before we move into visioning and solutioning. And here's where that shared ownership piece really comes to life because it's about tapping into our networks, both externally and internally, to learn about opportunities and to learn about obstacles and to learn about pain points. And as we think about externally, both, you know, so often we focus on the industry, but not really on the periphery as well. The third key uh, success principle in communication and change is around collective visioning. Collective visioning is hugely important in change because if we don't know where we're headed, then it's pretty hard to figure out what we want to do and how we want to get there. It's often skipped over and it doesn't, sometimes it can be sort of big, what I call big V visioning, which is like whole organization. What's our vision for the future? But so often in what we do, smaller change initiatives and projects that are happening all the time, all over the organization, it's really small V visioning. It's sort of what's our vision for this particular project? This particular project will streamline technology across four different regions of the globe, for example, yep. or this technology or this project is all about service excellence and the particular aspect we want to focus on let's say if we're York University, is service to our students and how do we keep students front of mind in everything we do. So you can have big vision, but you can also have sort of small vision. So is it articulating what the goal of the change project is? It's articulating it, but I also love the language of backcasting, which is sort of imagining the future in your perfect dream world and what does that look like and then sort of saying, if that's what we're trying to achieve collectively, sort of a collective aspirational vision of the future, then what do we need to be doing now and moving forward to get there? So this is an aside too, but what happens when a board of directors mandates something like that? Is mandates that, is, a vision or mandates a change? Mandates a change. You still can do the visioning piece, given that mandate what could this look like, uh, right? In our best possible world, what, what would we like to see? Yeah. So that is true. Often you're getting parameters handed down from the top 
And then, you know, the small V might also be for my region or for my unit or for my level. What does that look like? Right. Right. Which might be a little bit different from whatever the higher umbrella vision is. Okay. Okay. So the next success principle, number four, is my favorite. Mantras help simplify. Can you tell us what you mean by that? So a mantra is two or three words you would say meditatively, right? To sort of center yourself. Uh, And I love that idea when we're doing change, whether it's family or whether it's organizational in our personal lives or professionally. Change can be often be overwhelming and there's a lot of pieces and moving parts to change and to have some simple two or three words that convey the essence of change really helps. And so, for example, Free the Children is a local organization here in Toronto. And one of the initiatives they did, they ran this project called Change for Change, which was all about collecting the pennies that were becoming obsolete in our monetary system. You know, Change for Change, you kind of go, oh, I get it. Yeah. These little mantras really help do a couple things. One is they anchor the change. Second is... From a communication standpoint, they make it easier to diffuse the change. Right. Third is they help embed the change in the organization. Right. right? Because everybody's literally using the same language. Same words. Right. Right. I love that one. One of the things that's really helpful is chunking up change into phases. That Uh, way it doesn't feel like, oh my goodness, we're looking at like a 12-month time cycle on this. Uh, No, we're just focusing on the first three months. And what are we trying to get done in the next sort of 12 weeks, for example? So I'm just kidding. Sorry to interrupt you. Mm -hmm. The people who know you know that you are very fit and you swim a lot. And I think you used to run, right? Yeah. And I can imagine that this is also how you would tackle a marathon or swimming 25 lengths. You don't think about 25 lengths. It's right. one length at a time. Yeah. I actually triathlon. I do these mini triathlons. I don't know if you remember this. And that's one of the reasons I love them is because it's forced phasing because you swim first yep. and then you bike yep. and then you run. So There's rather than saying, there, right? Right? rather than saying, okay, you're going to do two hours in a competitive context of intense fitness. It's like, oh no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to swim first then I'm going to bike, then I'm going to run. So I actually never, speaking of making connections, I actually never thought about that as phase fitness before. Really? Right. Yeah, I, I just like that I like, <laughs> no, I just sort of like all three sports and like the fact that you do them all at the same time in some beautiful place, but sort of breaking up the two hour fitness goal otherwise. Right. Same idea. Yeah. So the phasing thing, and I like having milestones, building in milestones related to that, right? So that there's what does success look like after phase one, after phase two, after phase three, rather than just saying, have we attained that big vision at the end? So what do you tell your clients about celebrating milestones? I tell them it's really important. I also think it's really important to celebrate success as it happens. I think the tighter the link between Uh, event and celebration, the more impact it has. Sounds like good parenting advice. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Concrete, specific, and timely, right? That's funny. (laughs) So one of the things we can do to help ensure change fitness uh, is building in phases and milestones. Another thing we can do is prioritize. This is true in families too, right? If we tell our kids to do five things, they may just go, But if we say, you know what? what, what might be helpful first is blah, 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 and then move to whatever, or don't even mention the second thing yet. 
Right. Right. And so as leaders, it's helpful to do the same thing, sort of what are our top line items and focus on that. And I love the language of must have versus nice to have to help people sort. So what's really a must have in this change? Because when people start thinking about change, you know, pretty soon there's change scope creep and, oh, we could fold this into this and we could fold that into this. And how about if while we're doing this, we add this little piece on and, right? Like your house renovation, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly like a house reno. And sometimes that makes sense, you know, while you sort of have some momentum, but that can also lead to change fatigue. So prioritizing is, is another good one for helping to ensure change fitness. A final one maybe that I'll mention is sort of creating the space for pauses and reflection. And that's true, uh, you know, on a daily basis, weekly basis, personally, as well as professionally in these larger change projects. If we don't build in time to sort of step back and say, do we need to rethink this? What's working? What's not working? So reflection is a bit different from recovery. Reflection is more about taking the time to step back and look at what's happened thus far in the change and sort of say, hmm, how do we want to move forward? Do we want to course correct? Do we want to change some things? What's sort of not working so well that we need to pivot on? That's a bit different from recovery. Recovery is really taking a break, and that might be vacations or taking a day off. It might also be short breaks we can just build into our day. Actually, uh, with a colleague, we've just started really trying to get up and go outside the building twice a day. Really? Right? And it sounds so trivial, but the inertia around, no, I just have one more thing. I really should finish this. We're on a bit of a deadline on that, right? That recovery piece is so important as a way to minimize change fatigue. And then the last success principle for change communication, focus on the relational aspects of change. It's so easy for us to just focus on the rational elements, the strategy, the structure, the metrics, the technology. And that really takes us back to where we started around shared ownership, thinking about how do we build the relationships we need to create successful change. It's so interesting I can't remember where I stumbled across the idea of the inclusive we years ago, but I realized how often people, when talking about change, say, you must. One of the things you must do as part of this change, that you must doesn't land very well on a lot of us, right? Versus what do we think we might try in order to make this more successful? And so just that light shift in the words we use. And it was funny, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to one of the convocation speakers at York's convocation. And to the students throughout the speech, the person used, you must, you must, you must, you must. And it sounds condescending, doesn't it? Sounds condescending. And I thought, wow, that was a wonderful speech if they had just used the inclusive we throughout. One you know, word. let's think about, asked a few questions instead of been more directive. Mm. And it was sort of sad. And I see that all the time in organizations too, with top leaders in particular, you know, there's so much on their plates. They're not thinking about those tiny little details around communication that make all the difference. I've heard the same advice for parents. Mm-hmm. Like instead of what the heck were you thinking? How about what should we do about this? Yes. And then suddenly um, it's a shared my parents problem. are going to help me. 
It's a shared problem. Yeah, I always use the inclusive we I know, with I've my seen kids when they were growing yeah. up. Yeah, so much of what we talk about in change actually is so useful for raising families. Your next career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of focusing on the relational aspects of change, the last success principle, there's language. It's little things like I always try to start an email with, hope you had a good weekend or how's the start of your week going? Just a tiny little snippet of relational. I care about you. Or if I know about something they've done, did you do that triathlon? How did that go? And I think that really helps, you know, especially if you have an ask in an email from somebody, right. you just have that relational softener, whether it's email or whether it's face-to-face, it's so easy to just walk into somebody's office and do the ask versus sort of the relational check-in. It's interesting. One of the large consumer goods companies I worked with, and this may seem excessive to some people, but whenever we did our annual retreats with them, they would take literally an hour on the first morning of the retreat to do what they called head and heart check-in. Everybody that was at the retreat, they'd go around the circle. How's your head? How's your heart? And it's like, my head is in this because I'm really excited about this retreat and what we're trying to accomplish. My heart is a bit distracted because my five-year-old is home sick today. Or my head is not really in this because I've got this big conference call I got to take in two hours and I'm sort of distracted, but my heart is in this because I'm happy to be with my team here. And it was so interesting. What happened is those snippets would bubble up throughout the three or four days uh, they were offsite, right? And people would be making connections. And after I'd been through it, I was like, wow, that really does have huge benefits. So the corporation's actually sending an implicit message that they care about the people. Whole selves. Also, the people that are hearing the messages have a closer link with each other because yeah. they have insight. Yeah, insight and understanding, absolutely right, about them as whole people as opposed huh. to just sort of their professional hat. Is there anything you want to add about the six success principles? Maybe one thing to add is just like with change, it's hard to keep them all in mind all the time. But I think that's where it's useful, you know, even if you just have, I'm a big post-it girl, so I have post-its around that sort of have those high-level things, whether it's success principles or mantras or things I'm trying to keep in mind. And So you may have just answered one of the rapid fire questions (laughs) with that answer. So now I'm going to move on to the five rapid fire questions that I ask every guest. Are you ready? I'm ready. First question, what are your pet peeves? Probably lack of heart. You got to show heart, whether it's how you walk down the sidewalk, whether it's how you treat an insect, whether it's how you talk with colleagues at work. The lack of heart is a pet peeve. I feel like all other pet peeves that I've heard or experienced (laughs) myself now are so insignificant. Okay. Second, what type of learner are you? Visual, auditory, kinesthetic, or something else? Definitely visual. I am always drawing circles and arrows to try to understand thinking, like my own thinking, other people's thinking. Verbal directions don't work at all for me. I need to sort of see what it is and then it becomes so much easier. Question number three, introvert or extrovert? Leaning definitely towards extrovert. I sort of work out and figure out things through talking, but I also really need reflection time. I do that mostly multitasking through exercise, but... Yeah, um, you mentioned that actually. Yeah. <laughs> Think about when you're sleeping and when you're exercising, yeah, you come right. up. <laughs> yeah, so I definitely, I definitely need that introverted time as well. So fourth question, your communication preference for personal conversations. Probably too much emphasis on text for efficiency is, I'm not sure that's a 
preferred choice or just the reality of how my life happens. Okay, last question. Is there a podcast or a blog or an email newsletter that you find yourself recommending? Super Soul Sundays, I love. There's so many great people that Oprah has on that from so many walks of life. Yeah, she's phenomenal. Another one I really like is actually one one you shared with me. I don't read it every day, but I certainly check in on it, especially about U.S. politics, because I like their take. Um, it's called The Skim, and I think it's two former reporters, if I'm right. Yeah. But they sort of chit-chat about really heavy and deep issues in a way that's super accessible, and you don't have to know the backstory, because they provide a quick little summary of the backstory in case yeah. you weren't tracking that issue. I love that, that one. I'll leave a link for that in the show notes as well. Is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners regarding communicating change? Maybe one last thought is the power of communication. It is all about communication. We don't do things differently. We don't shift. We don't morph. We don't evolve without conversation and communication. And so thank you so much for opening my eyes to thinking through the communication lens because I, I actually haven't done that explicitly. And it's it's been really fascinating for me and full of insights. Oh, me too. I Thank you very, very much for sharing your insights. And thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. So now you can see why Ellen was my favorite MBA professor, right? Isn't she awesome? I hope you too enjoyed the conversation and I hope you learned something about communicating change. Let me quickly summarize the five mistakes and the six success principles of communicating change. Okay, first, the five mistakes. There's number one, steamrolling forward without really understanding the context. That doesn't work. There's number two, telling and selling. Most of us don't like to be bluntly told what to do, right? Number three, lock and load, as in locking and loading on the first feasible strategy, rather than really exploring ideal alternatives. Then there's number four, ignoring the politics, rather than embracing the inner politician. And last, there's burning ourselves out, or change fatigue, rather than building change fitness by prioritizing, pacing, streamlining, engaging others and letting them lead, and building in time for reflection and recovery. Got it? So the five mistakes are steamrolling forward, telling and selling, locking and loading, ignoring the politics, and burning ourselves out. Now, the six success principles for change communication. First, we have shared ownership from the start. We talked about the temptation to steamroll forward and tell and sell. You need shared ownership. Number two, taking the time to assess the landscape and do the diagnostics. That's how we avoid the pitfalls of steamrolling forward and locking and loading. But it's beyond the basic SWOT analysis. It's really thinking more externally. Number three, collective visioning is another piece of the puzzle that's hugely important, whether it's a conversation with your family or at work. So there's small V visions like, how does everyone in your family envision the next vacation? Is it calm and serene, quietly reading books by a lake? Or is it adventure and adrenaline, ziplining and rock climbing? What's the vision? Or it could be big V visions like this year's corporate strategic plan. This is about the collective construction of what we're aspiring to and what success would look like. The fourth success principle is that mantras help simplify. I really love this one, as I said. 
Communication in change can often be overwhelming. And the more we keep the key messages consistent and simple, the easier it is for all of us to align and move forward. Mantras help anchor, diffuse, and embed the change. No kidding. We heard all about this from Tosca Reno a few weeks ago, didn't we? Number five, building change fitness. It's easy to keep pushing for change as leaders, but we need to be conscious of burnout and change fatigue. And number six, focus on the relational aspects of change. Whether personal or professional, always try to use the inclusive we. It sounds so simple, but often we use you should or you must, and most of us don't respond to that very well, do we? Okay, I'm going to print the list of the six principles that Ellen shared right now for myself and put them on my bulletin board. You too can reference that printable page in the show notes. And now I leave you with Ellen's concluding words about communicating change. She said, and I quote, maybe one last thought. It's the power of communication. It is all about communication. We don't do things differently. We don't shift. We don't move. We don't evolve without conversation and communication. Nicely put. All right, that's it. I would love to hear what you think of all this. Please connect with me on social media if you have any questions or comments. I'd also love it if you would sign up for the Talk About Talk weekly email blog and encourage your friends to do the same. I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening and talk soon.